Well, good morning, lovely listeners, or afternoon, or evening, whenever you're listening to this. Welcome back. Hello, welcome back. So, this week is one of our exciting interview weeks. Yes, Emma's been off on her own with her little recorder. I've left you, yep. Left me again, it's fine. I was twiddling my thumbs, wondering what to do, you off having an awesome time. And who are you interviewing? So this interview took place uh, this summer um, when I was based at the Climate Impacts Research Centre in Northern Sweden. And I met uh, a really, really lovely, lovely uh, researcher. Her name is Dr. Nancy Grimm. Uh, She's from Arizona and she's a professor of ecology. But one of the things she also does is advise cities on how to develop more sustainably um, so that they are more able to handle climate change. So things like uh, big weather events um, and basically adapt to what is likely to be coming in the future. That's beautiful. Fascinating. She's really, really lovely and has some amazing ideas on, on what we need to do to kind of, you know, make sure our developed and built environment can withstand the changes that are coming. It's very on topic, very relevant. So I am very interested to listen to this interview. Let's have a listen. Yeah, lovely intro. Right. <laughs> Take it away. <laughs> Nancy, hello. Welcome to Arbisco. Thanks. It's great to be here. It's not bad, is it? Um, listen, I really wanted to get you in the room today because, I mean, the chances of both of us being here at the same time is pretty nuts, especially in the middle of nowhere. Um, I'm obviously from the UK. You're from Arizona. Mm-hmm. And we're both here in the Arctic in Arbisco. In northern Sweden. <laughs> in quite Figure literally that. the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Yes. But it's really lovely to be here because it's a, it's a chance to get away from all the bustle and uh, and so forth. And, and it kind of reminds me that there's... A lot of the earth that's like this, or maybe somewhat like this, but not like the city that I live in. Yeah. Because cities are just about 2% of the land surface. Um, I know, it feels like a lot more though when you're in them. It does, they they feel really big. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the irony is we're sat here talking about nature and enjoying the natural environment, but I actually want to talk to you about cities and about the work that you've been doing in making cities more sustainable. Yeah, and you know, cities are... um, part of nature as well um they just happen to be the place where uh where people concentrate so where we concrete over everything yeah that's right well hopefully not because that's what we're working for we're working to bring bring a little bit more nature back into cities um the project i'm working on is a it's called the urban resilience to extreme sustainability research network Mm -hmm. it's a network of about 18 institutions and close to 100 people and uh, researchers and uh, 100, over 150 practitioners from cities working together to try to think of solutions to make cities more resilient in the face of uh, future uh, extreme events, which we expect to be increasing in both frequency and magnitude in the future. Good old climate change, eh? Good old climate change. Things like more heat waves, more big rain events, uh, more coastal flooding, more riverine flooding, more urban flooding. Uh, more droughts, more water scarcity, those kinds of things. And you're an ecologist by trade. That's how right. Does, yeah. How does your background play into what you're doing with them? Well, in our project, we we have in uh, in each one of our cities, we have a team that consists 
hopefully of at least one ecologist, one social scientist, and one engineer. So we think those three domains writ mm -hmm. large are really essential to understanding how to prepare cities to be more resilient. In fact, they're, they're pretty important domains in almost everything that we do. So the domains I'm talking about are the social behavioral domain, mm -hmm. and that includes things like governance and so forth, the technological domain, which includes engineering and design, and then the ecological domain, which is sort of the nature part of it. Um, and so um, we believe that those, that sort of integrating those social, ecological, technological domains in a system framework, so we call that SETS, S-E-T-S, <laughs> uh, is really the way to think about uh, solutions that are going to be, um, that are really going to last, be sustainable into the future under climate change. And taking Arizona and Phoenix, in fact, as an example, how have you and the team that you've been working with been, well, future-proofing Phoenix? Well, we, um, we, what we're trying to do is to work with uh, city practitioners and people that are, um, sometimes it's non-governmental organizations, sometimes it's governmental officials, it's also um, members of the business community and so forth. And, and what we're really trying to do is um, to think about how we can uh, envision positive futures for a city like Phoenix that um, would allow people to be able to uh, enjoy existing there um, in <laughs> conditions that are likely to occur in 2080, for example. So okay. how do yeah. we make the city uh, a more livable place uh, given the likely increase in uh, heat, extreme heat? So just to give you an example, for Phoenix, um, projections is that we'll have um, over... Uh, let's see, I'm going to give you this in Fahrenheit because that's Ooh. what I think in. Um, no, I think I could do it in, in uh, Celsius as well. So um, 50 is the current uh, extreme high for uh, Phoenix. Celsius. Celsius, oh, yes. Oh, my goodness. And so we're talking... I am not coming to visit in the summer. <laughs> yeah, don't come to visit in the <laughs> summer. Mad. It's beautiful in the winter, though. Um, we're actually thinking about um, something around uh, 47, 48 degrees um, that we may hit that level um, something like 30 days a year by 2080. Oh, wow. Yeah, so a lot of extreme heat. And so how do you live with that? Well, the best way to live with that is actually something that Phoenix already does, which is to have a very high percentage of the buildings and the homes have air conditioning. Okay. Air conditioning is great. It has allowed us to grow to a city of over almost 5 million people, um, a metropolitan area. Um, so you can shelter from Because people can get out of the sun mm -hmm. and they can um, be in the air conditioning. Now that has some risk because it's potentially... Uh, it's potentially uh, a risky situation if, for example, there's a power failure. I, I think that's the nightmare for Phoenix, if there's a power failure and people are exposed to those kinds of heats during a heat wave. It would be, it would be disastrous. So how can we yeah, actually can protect against that? Well, one of the things that we think about doing, um, and I don't think about this as much because I'm not really an expert in this, but some of our engineering folks think about it. How do we... Uh, think about a, a power system, an energy supply system that is more flexible than the one that we have. How, instead of a monumental power system that can go out all at once, how can we have something that might be able to deal with um, infrequent shocks like heat waves 
and be able to uh, persist in that in that situation. I can take this to something that I can deal with a little bit more, which is um, what happens when you have floods. Uh, right now, we um, we think about when we build cities, we think about um, preparing for urban flooding by having drainage ditches mm-hmm. and pipes that carry the water away to the nearest waterway. Uh, the problem is that all of those designs are really contingent on our understanding of what the probability of a certain size of event has been in the past. And under climate change, we know those probabilities are changing a lot. So yeah. that it's going to become much, much more um, likely that we'll have a big event that would exceed the capacity of the pipe or blow out the um, uh, the levy or whatever in the future. And so instead of just making things ever bigger, 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 what we think we need to do is to adopt solutions that are more flexible, that actually will take um, uh, that shifting probability uh, and say, okay, we can live with the probability that something's going to happen, but let's, let's play with the consequences. The Be consequences aren't dire. We don't have a levy that breaks and floods an entire neighborhood, but instead we might have um, a dedicated area uh, of a floodplain that can absorb those floodwaters, even if they get really big. Example of that in, in Scottsdale, actually. Okay, brilliant. Um, and this is amazing because it was um, designed in the 1970s, um, before there was a lot of talk about nature-based solutions or green infrastructure and so forth. And this was a, um, a wash in... Um, uh, wash is a is a, a stream channel that, that doesn't hold water except during um, rain events. Okay. Uh, and this this ephemeral wash that that only flows in response to rain was not really a problem before people started to build housing and um, businesses and so forth close to the close to the channel uh, and the flood um, risk zone. Yeah, into the flood risk zone, exactly. And since the floods happen so infrequently in the desert, it was nobody really thought it was going to be a problem at all. Yeah. But what happened was there was a big event in the late 1960s that um, resulted in one loss of life and a lot of property damage. And so the city did what, what cities often did at the time, which was to call the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and say, we need a design to take care of this. Yeah. And they would bring in the typical design, which is to say, if you build a concrete flume that's big enough to hold an event that would occur once every hundred years based on the past yeah. knowledge of what's happened in uh-huh. the past, then you won't have this problem. But the city of Scottsdale did not want this. I can imagine. Yeah. I mean, it's a long and skinny city, north-south, and this uh, this wash cuts right through it. Oh, gosh. And so the entire city would have had to look at this ugly thing. Yeah. So instead they said, uh-uh, and the public voted it down. I really... Came back to the drawing board and said, we need something that's more multifunctional that's more flexible something that will work for us and so they have a long linear greenway it's full of parks and has some little ponds that they kept keep filled up during uh during the low flow periods and when it floods it just floods across these parks and um grass grassy areas and doesn't really produce much damage so it does fail but it doesn't fail catastrophically. But it's almost designed to fail. It's designed yeah. to be ready to fail. And it yes. keeps that we call, away from In fact, from we call people. it safe to fail. Safe this to fail. Is a, oh, I like that This phrase. is a technique, that, a, a, a terminology that we've adopted for a lot of the things that we're trying to uh, strategize is uh, 
rather than having a fail-safe system where you have some big monumental seawall against sea level rise or a big levee along the river against river flooding, that you actually, um, and, that, and that would have a very low probability of failing, but if it did, the consequences would be huge. Mm. Instead, in the safe to fail, you say, okay, the, the probability of failure might be higher, but the consequences would not be that dire. So it would be okay. It wouldn't be great, but it would be okay if it flooded. So this is, you know, in, in the Netherlands, they have this room for the river program where they've actually adopted um, allowing rivers to have much more space to, to ah. flood. And that's an, a good example of a safe to fail system as well. Great. So not actually building right on top of nature and giving it a little bit more leeway. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, I think I think if we think about this sets framing, the idea yeah. of social, ecological, technological systems, and we say, you know, let's let a little bit of nature into this, um, the solutions that we're thinking about, mm. because there are a lot of things that natural systems can do really well. Yeah. We can try to em- emulate those, but why not just let the natural systems do it? Let them do that example, thing. coastal um, flooding, for example, if you have, if you keep these uh, mangroves, for example, yeah. um, they're very good at protecting against sea surge and those kinds of storm events that would um, that would uh, flood coastal properties. Yeah, they create a huge natural buffer, don't they? They so do. You, yeah, yeah. And dunes is another example. Yeah. Um, oyster reefs, even another ah. example. So these are a lot of um, these kind of nature-based solutions are a lot of the things that are being implemented in various places. They're trying in South Florida, which is, uh, of course, a um, epicenter of uh, sea level rise yeah. challenges. Um, New York City, around New York City, there's a number of um, nature-based solutions that are being put into place. Oh, really? What have they put around New York? Um, well, so some of these marshes, fin- uh, re- restoring um, big natural wetland areas. There's some areas where they're doing de- dune restoration. Oh, brilliant. Um, some areas where they're actually trying to incorporate um, the possibility of... I, I've seen some designs, and I can't tell you exactly who they are, unfortunately, but... That's okay, um, we'll keep it a secret. You know, I, I've seen some designs where they're, they're, um, the neighborhoods are actually... You know, they understand that there may be some flooding. It's this sort of idea of safe to fail again, that there may be some flooding, but it doesn't really affect because the, the houses are up a little bit. And so they can just... It can flood around there. It's okay to And flood. it's okay. Yeah, yeah. so it's... I, I think there are lots of uh, good examples that are coming up all over the world of this kind of thing. Um, and I think the other thing is that engineers, some very enlightened engineers, are starting to get really into this idea of um, of sort of playing with risk in this way mm-hmm. um, and thinking about things that could be, instead of just knowing the di- diameter of the pipe that you need for the 100-year flood, you know, what are some ways that you can make this more flexible? Um, make cities more resilient and infrastructure more resilient um, to these extreme events without having to make it just too big to even deal with. And going back to heat as well, something that I heard in season one of this podcast, um, which first got me started thinking about, you know, how we can build our cities and be smart using nature in our cities, um, was the fact that by growing trees, for example, down a road, you can lower the average temperature of the environment underneath yeah. the trees and in the road by a couple of degrees yeah and that's you know one of the reasons that they have so many boulevards lined with trees back in the uk and in europe um and you said something very interesting about bus stops in arizona yeah yeah so um there actually have been there's a 
there's a great deal of interest in the city of Phoenix in increasing um, tree cover. Mm. It is now quite low. It's about 11% oh, really? canopy cover, and they want to go up to 25%. And that's that's Sounds quite good. a challenge to yeah. do that. Now, in Phoenix, a place like Phoenix and some of the other cities we're working in, like Hermosillo, Mexico, for example, um, that's a bigger challenge because growing trees requires water. So how do we actually, and, and one thing we might want to be thinking about is how we can combine stormwater capture with watering of trees ah. so that it's not reliance upon using water sources that we'd need, we'd need for, for drinking and, mm. and other sorts of things. But be that as it may, um, it is true that having vegetation has a very, very strong impact on um, local temperatures. So in Phoenix, we know from some work of my colleague Sharon Harlan in the past that uh, some of the neighborhoods that have a lot of tree cover because that tree cover was is on you know big private lots are much, much cooler than other areas that have very little. And it just so happens that that it doesn't just so happen. It is actually <laughs> a consequence of um, past injustice that those areas that are hotter are areas that are occupied by people of lower income yeah. and ethnic minorities compared to the wealthier people that live in the cooler, more treed areas mm-hmm. of, um, of Phoenix. And so a lot of the ideas we're thinking about are how can we help these neighborhoods that are particularly exposed to heat um, develop designs that will um, help them in their exposure when they have to go outside. Because Mm -hmm. almost everybody in Phoenix has an air conditioner. That's not the problem. It's people that work outdoors. It's people that are experiencing homelessness and people that are relying on public transportation to get around who are um, really most at risk. And so, um, and certainly those that don't have air conditioning and for some people they don't because they can't afford to run it Mm. they may have it but they can't afford to run it so those are also issues um but with the trees the idea is to is to put um tree cover in areas that are um very common routes to bus stops but also to have both artificial shading and uh, tree shading associated with those bus stops instead of just having them be a metal bench out and exposed to the sun in the baking heat in the baking heat yes the baking heat is is quite um quite a lot i'd say actually we have a student who right now is working in hermosillo mexico and um it's a also a city in the sonoran desert it's about one million people so not quite as big as uh as phoenix um, and and they have a very high bus ridership there. So she's been interviewing people at the bus stops about their thermal Aww. comfort and measuring uh, temperatures at these different bus stops and um, asking about designs, about shade for the bus stops and so forth. So I think there's a, a chance that there'll be some some changes there that I think will will really improve that situation. It's brilliant. I love that. I just think that it's the sort of thing that as a member of the public or as a user of the bus system, you wouldn't ever really think about, but actually having those systems there and having those trees at the bus would make a huge impact on your day. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. also it's great to be exposed to a bit more nature on your daily commute yeah, as well. Yeah, we have another um, another case that's, that's really quite interesting, which is I mentioned the um, population of people that are experiencing homelessness are particularly exposed because, Ooh, yes. of course, they don't. They can go to shelters, um, but one of the things that I, I had a postdoc, uh, Marina, uh, sorry, uh, Monica Palta, who worked on um, the homeless population that was using these areas of the 
otherwise dry salt river bed which is in phoenix that has these um, what we call accidental wetlands places where water is coming out of the city out of storm pipes and so forth and these wetlands are growing up there and they're very cool places relative to the surrounding Um, she found they were much much cooler but she also found that a fairly substantial number of homeless people would make their way there and were using these areas for sleeping for um, bathing, um, just to get out of the heat. And, um, they're much more pleasant places than, than the shelters are. And so it's, it's actually a really interesting, um, an interesting, uh, kind of nature-based solution, if you will, but not anything that anyone has deliberately planned. Um, well, you've mentioned aircon quite a lot. Now I know that if I'm going to generalize, aircon is a much more prevalent and very big thing in many parts of the States. Uh, in the UK, we don't have so much of a need for air conditioning. But one thing that we do hear about quite a lot is uh, the energy that it takes to run air conditioning, especially in a massive city like Phoenix, which, mm-hmm. like you said, every household will have it and it will be on for the duration of that hot summer. Yeah. This is a climate change sustainability podcast. So... I don't know if you know the answer to this question, but what's kind of Phoenix's energy mix? Like, I would assume if you're in a really hot environment, you could really capitalize on solar power. But is it, yeah. do you think it, it, there is much renewable kind of inputting that huge energy need to keep you, to keep you cool? Or There's a lot of stuff um, going on in, in Phoenix that has to do with uh, energy use. Um, it, unfortunately, it's not as... Uh, as much of a solar powerhouse as I wish it would be because it seems like a natural place to do that. Um, But one of the things that um, people think, yeah, it is expensive to run air conditioning, Mm. true. Um, But we don't run heat. We don't don't need heat. And it's much more expensive to heat a house than it is to cool a house. Oh, is it? Yes. And so um, I think for a lot of areas and under climate change, you're going to see that heating bill go down. Um, as temperatures increase but uh, yeah the air conditioning is is definitely it's something you need to have mm-hmm. to live in uh, in Phoenix or at least the I way we fully live imagine yeah um, I just got back from a trip to Egypt and there's a lot of places there that don't have air conditioning but the traditional um, way of living would be quite cool. I mean, there's ways with design, landscape design and vegetation that you can keep a place relatively cool. But with cities with high rises, um, in Cairo, they're all high rises and they all have window air conditioners on them, you know, one after the other. Oh. Those are not very efficient. I but I think when you live in a, in a tight city, you know, with a lot of high rise apartments, you absolutely need to have that in a climate like that. I was just in Lyon last week when the heat well, wave the was going on. Oh, gosh, yeah. France's yeah. record temperatures. Right, summer. and nobody has air conditioning there. Even the restaurants don't have air conditioning. We, so we don't expect really, a 40 degree yeah, heat over here in Europe. That yeah, is, yeah. It's absolutely it went up to 45, I believe, in, in southern France. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was too much. Very extreme. Yeah. So that's common in, in Arizona to have those. I mean, it's not every day, but it's fairly common to have those kinds of temperatures. But um, but we're prepared for it. We have the air conditioning. So I heard um, that, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I heard that in parts of Arizona, there are kind of 
air misters that happen in the streets to keep you cool if you do have to go outside in the street in, um, yeah. in the summer yeah. well how that works is that um it takes a lot of energy to evaporate water yeah and so if you have a very dry climate um it evaporates really quickly yes. uh, and so that energy that it takes to evaporate that water, it means it's going to cool off the air. So there's actually a, a thing we call a swamp cooler. It's called an evaporative cooler. Okay. It's used in Arizona where you draw water in from the outside. You pass it across some straw pads that have water dripping on them so they're wet, and then the water blows into the house and it's cooled uh -huh. substantially. Um, it's really quite nice That's because you have air flowing idea. through your house and yeah. it's, you know, it's moist air and it's cool. Um, and you also realize this if you ever go swimming in, in June when it's, you know, maybe uh, 40 degrees uh, in the air and you go in the water and you get out and you're instantly cold and you think, how could I be cold? Because I've just, you know, it's, it's 40 degrees out, but you're cold because the evaporation of the water off your skin is um, taking a lot of energy. Yeah. So, um, so I think that the misters are this idea that you just throw this uh, mist into the air and it cools the air and it's really quite comfortable to sit outside on a sidewalk cafe or something like that with a mister going on you can sit there when it's when it's quite hot and it's really pleasant but this would not work in a place like um paris or atlanta georgia for yeah. example or, or washington dc because the humidity is too high so okay, you want so to evaporate to the water enough dry. Yeah. The yeah. only thing I can kind of relate to that is um, going to Florida with my family when I was young and just being completely overwhelmed by the heat because obviously yeah. that was a bit yeah. of a shock to us Brits. Yeah. And they used to sell these kind of like squirty water fans yes. and you could fan yourself in the face. And yeah. Yeah. We were addicted to those. <laughs> they were just, we were yeah. the Brits in the queue like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, couldn't handle right. the heat. But you know what? Sometimes it doesn't work so well in Florida because the humidity is pretty high there. I do remember so. it being a very humid, quite sweaty trip. Yeah. A great trip. Yeah. Yeah. But a very muggy trip. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. You know, one of the things about about Phoenix is it's it's typical for people to say there should not be a city there. Why are people living there? They should not be living there. Okay. And I have a couple answers to that. Great. Right. First of all, I don't even have to ask you the uh, question. Yeah, the se the seat of civilization, <laughs> right? Um, the first cities were in the arid. Uh, Middle East, yeah, right. First cities, and one of the reasons for that is the need to actually get together and and work together in a very harsh environment, right? The need to gather water for irrigation. In fact, ah, there was a civilization collaborate. in cities uh, in in the Phoenix area, um, which is the reason Phoenix has its name, the Hohokam, um, that were there until about fourteen hundred BC, oh. about five hundred years of habitation of this area, and captured. Uh, flow from the river to irrigate crops and um, the whole shebang. So, um, so that's one answer. Um, now, the question is, should there be 5 million people, 10 million people, or 1 million people in the Phoenix area? But the other thing I would say is that because of that need to be together to bring all the resources to that area in terms of water and various things like that, um, there's the city and then there's nothing. So... It's not like people are spread all over the landscape. They're concentrated, albeit in a spread out area, but they're concentrated <laughs> in one place. Yeah, you still localized. And so, um, you know, there, there, uh, there are some benefits to that concentration of people. And when we talk to the Phoenix uh, officials, when we do this 
uh, positive visioning exercise with them. There's a lot of interest in densifying, increasing vegetation, uh, you know, decreasing the reliance on uh, automobile. I think every scenario that we developed had some alternative transportation that was not ah, the automobile. Good. Uh, so, you know, there's a recognition that some of the ways that Phoenix has grown are not the best ways to grow, but there is also an understanding that, you know, we can take a lot of the solutions that um, maybe other cities are going to need to understand and test them out there. It's a really great test bed for understanding how huh. cities can live under these hot climate conditions. So, yeah, I think, uh, I think it's, uh, it's, it's too simple to say nobody should live there. Yeah. Right. I mean, you could say, because coastal cities are all at risk from sea level Very rise, true. maybe nobody should live on the coast. That's, that's silly. You know, where are we going to live then? Yeah. You would just yeah. eliminate so many places. Exactly. Well, the way you talk about how Phoenix is set up, it actually, it reminds me of Vegas. It just seems to be in the middle of kind of nowhere just in this really hot desert environment but there mm -hmm. still seems to be this very energy and water intensive life thriving mm -hmm. yes is vegas at all sustainable well i mean i think in the same way that phoenix is potentially sustainable is we really have to work on how we live in those environments and how we can um, take advantage of um, abundant sunlight for example and get those um, solar panels out the capacity to um, recycle reuse water mm -hmm. this is there's a tremendous amount of that going on it's just amazing when you think about it um, there phoenix for example is putting more water in the ground than it's taking out oh really yes so there's a lot of groundwater um, recharge going on deliberate recharge of groundwater you now, know, that's just the city stories. of Phoenix, so some of the cities around there don't have that same balance. So we're still a little bit off kilter with respect to the groundwater. But there's a lot of solutions, I think, that people are that are being tried that I think will potentially make. Um, of course, we could go the wrong way, too. We could make the wrong choices. And this is what this envisioning process helps us to sort of tease apart. What are the trade-offs associated with investing to you know in a particular energy strategy or what are the trade-offs associated with protecting against um, heat but not really thinking about drought so there we can look at those trade-offs by building these future scenarios that are generally positive generally normative what do you want and then running models to look at what the consequences of that alternative configuration would be for storage of water, for heat distribution, for um, flooding and various things like that. Um, Brilliant. Well, let's hope we make some of the right decisions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, I think that's probably about all we've got time for. Thank you okay. so much. Sure. One last thing before we wrap up. Now, I didn't warn you I was going to do this, but we ask everyone who guests on the podcast one question and myself and Lloyd, we always try and answer it too. Um, what one good thing have you done this week? So this could be any decision that you've made or decision you've made not to do or if you've avoided plastics or you've changed your routine in any way just one one little thing one good thing of, that has to do with sustainability yeah i mean aside from this whole job that you've told me about which is making big inroads into sustainability mm. are there any little things that you can do i was going to talk about one enjoyable thing that i did this week which was suspend the day in the field yesterday which was wonderful but that's not really a a good answer to that um oh my goodness what one thing have i done this week or month, uh, we can broaden it out. You have been traveling. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Ah, well, that's something I did this week. I took the night train from Stockholm rather ah, than flying. Fantastic. Well done. I did the same thing, so maybe that can count as mine as well. Okay, that's good. I think that's one of the benefits of being at a climate research centre. Um, yeah. They yeah. definitely encourage you to have the yeah. uh, unique experiences of a European night yeah. train. Yeah. Did you enjoy it? My bunk was full of people that snored. Oh, I, I wouldn't know because I was out, but no. I... <gasps> you were the one snoring. <laughs> I could have been. <laughs> uh, no, my my bunk was full of people that didn't speak any English, so oh, I was, really? it was pretty lonely. But it was it was good. Oh well, well done. I, I think slept. that's great. That's one extra flight, completely averted. <laughs> yes, it is. Brilliant. It well, is. thanks very much uh, for coming You're on. I really welcome. appreciate it. It's been lovely to meet you, and I will look you fun. up if I ever find myself in Phoenix. Yes, just don't come in the summer. I absolutely will not. <laughs> I'm going in the winter. That is for sure. <laughs> So that's it from that's it from Sweden. That's it from me and Nancy. So a big thank you to her for joining me in my makeshift Arctic studio up in Sweden. Yeah, thank you very much. That was absolutely fascinating. Well done. Pretty cool. Uh, we will continue doing more interviews with interesting people. Absolutely. If you're an interesting person, why not get in touch with us? Oh, what a caveat. Or just about anything. But, you know, if, if you've got a story you'd like to tell us and you think you're particularly well-placed to tell it, you can email us. At forwardatsurfpod at gmail.com. Thank you. Uh, we have Instagram. At forwardatsurfpodcast. There's a Twitter. What Earth Pod. And there's a Facebook. Forwardatsurfpodcast. So get in contact with us, um, whether that's for yourself or just to send us some cool, interesting, creamy things. Absol- absolutely. We'll what, what, what Lloyd said. <laughs> yeah. All, all those things that I just <laughs> said, all those words. Get in touch. Stay up to date with what we're up to. Um, yeah, be green, everyone. But until then, yeah, well. we'll see you next week. See you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.